Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with Anchorage public historian David Reamer. What exactly is a public historian, you might ask? A public historian is concerned with including a public audience, while an academic historian is generally concerned with including an audience of their peers. Academic historians, David says, have a tendency to create an echo chamber of ideas that perpetuates and builds off of old and often prejudiced narratives. Whereas the purpose of the public historian is to deliver information to the people it affects. David calls this the democratization of knowledge. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, and Scott Liska. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep this podcast alive. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. Patreon.com slash crude magazine, and pick the subscription tier that works for you. A quick note here. I want to thank my friend Helen Payares of Showdown Productions for suggesting I reach out to David Reamer, the subject of today's podcast. She became aware of him because of his history posts on Nextdoor, a social network that connects neighborhood communities. Okay, back to David Reamer. A lot of David's work is concerned with Anchorage's historical relationship with race. Generally, how Anchorage has never been as tolerant as it likes to believe. He points to Alaska's self-identification of exceptionalism. The idea that Alaska is better than other places because our morals and our values have always been ahead of their time. David says this has never been the case. Because, unless you're Alaska native, you or your family moved here from somewhere else, bringing with you the beliefs and disposition of your original home. However, above all, He believes in change and the power of self-determination. That precedent matters because change begets change. So here he is, David Reamer. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! David. Hi, Cody. (laughs) Thanks for being on the show, man. Thank you, man. It's an honor to be invited. So we were just talking about, just before I I had pressed record, um, how shoddily made the city of Anchorage is. Yes. A result of building during economic booms, trying to answer the call for housing quickly, um, the shorter building season, the lack of housing um, authorities to check up on the building, multiple civic authorities with having power over different sections of the city. There weren't effective housing codes until the 1970s. As I was saying, you didn't have to have a built-in heating source in an apartment building until the 1970s. And most buildings were grandfathered in into those codes. Um, There was also the, I mentioned the separate civic authorities. 
um, 40s and 50s into the very early 1960s, there were the public utility districts that were their own independent authorities. They were in charge of gathering taxes if they felt like it. Most times they did not. Um, fire departments, policing, which they actually usually did not bother to, or, or they paid for the city to cover their territory, as Spadar did. Uh, water, sewage, which, again, they usually did not bother with. Uh, Mountain View had its own public utility um, utility district. Fairview did. Spinar did. And laws largely did not exist there. There are horror stories, multiple horror stories, of fire departments watching a fire that just happened to be on the other side of a boundary line. Um, Northern Lights was a border for a long time. South of Northern Lights was Spinard, and then later the borough of Anchorage. And fire departments were under no authority and were strictly ordered not to cross that line. So they'd just be sitting there watching it? Yes, literally watching it. The original cars in Fairview, um, it was, you know, everyone knows the story. It was originally a Quonset hut, uh, built up in 53, 54 into an actual modern store. That burned down in 57, I believe. Originally, city of Anchorage firefighters responded to the call, but cars is in Fairview. So they waited and they watched while the volunteer fire department of Fairview could get to the scene. Wow, that's crazy. And that car's burnt to the ground. And so you said everybody knows that it was a Quonset hut. Yes. Was it a cars as a Quonset hut? It had been a um, different grocer before um, Carr bought it, but it was the cars Quonset. You can find it. Um, he would tell stories of how, I mean, it was just an old Quonset hut. There was no security. He told stories of um, he didn't bother locking it. I mean, some of this might be exaggerated or even apocryphal, but he said anyone could walk up with a wrench, undo the nuts on the side, take off a piece of the side, and walk <laughs> out with whatever they wanted. Groceries. Yes. <laughs> and food was expensive in Anchorage back then. Yeah. Anything fresh. Um, I was recently looking at prices for, because um, that's something I really enjoy showing people, the difference in prices over time. Like if you go out to some you know far off village in Alaska, the the grocery prices can look insane. Oh, absurd. Yeah. Um, canned food, of course, is fine. Meat wasn't too much of a problem. But I was looking at prices for the um, Traveler's Inn in Fairview, now the Travel Inn, which mm -hmm. originally was like the luxury spot in town. And now it is so far re removed from that. <laughs> um, but it was the best place in town. It was before there were hotel chains. It had the best restaurant, one of the best restaurants in town, the Kobuk. Mm -hmm. And... Prices were what you would expect, dollar for some coffee, you know, 10 to $15 for a steak. But a fruit salad converting to $2019 would cost more than $20 just really? for the cost of getting fruit up to Alaska. And this is in 1950, um, opened in 1953, and I think I had a menu from 1954. Things were much more expensive than they are now. Yes. Because of how fresh some fresh items were. Like having fresh vegetables in the 50s was something to advertise. Yeah. So uh I guess to give um listeners a little background on who uh I'm talking to today, according to your Humanities Commons profile, your an academic and public scholar interested in the intersections of social justice history, and community construction. Yes. <laughs> Can you explain that to me? <laughs> yes. Um, so there's a harsh divide between academic historians and what's 
somewhat newer field as far as recognition goes, public history. And I try and do both. Academic history is your traditional right in sight. You have to interact with other historians. I mean, that's how I was trained. What is your intervention in the historiography? What are you doing different than what other historians have done? So you're writing to impress historians. And that's how you get some of those very dry, sometimes very useful university press books that sit in libraries, get read by historians and commented on by historians. And that's the circle. Mm -hmm. It stays there sometimes. Some of this great knowledge sometimes is caught within the circle and doesn't escape. Kind of just speaking to your peers. Yes. It's very much an echo chamber of sorts that... So there's the checks and balances of it. You know, you get checked more. People are know more what you're talking about, how accurate you are. But you lose some of your audience. Mm-hmm. Public historians are all concerned about reaching a public audience and not just reaching an audience, but giving them a narrative, a story that, while remaining accurate, is something of interest and includes the audience in the process. Like I do oral history interviews. I talk to the community. I've um, been posting on Nextdoor little community bites that would not get published in a proper academic university press style history book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I bridge those worlds. I've written journal articles that have been peer reviewed and published. I have six peer reviewed pieces um, while I'm still a master's student. But I'm also doing those public history things. I've been contracted by the Cook Inlet Historical Society, which is the local historical society, to write um, full book-length histories of Fairview and Spinard for a more public audience. And I've given them, um, actually gave them my third draft of Fairview this week, and I'm working on Spinard currently, interviewing the um, great exotic dancer pillow tomorrow and next week i am scheduled to talk to uh, mike gordon the founder of chillcoots well, that's great i actually did a uh, one of these podcasts with him a while back um can you kind of take me through your process of researching these places you know you mentioned fairview you mentioned spinard like what do you what do you do first um the problem with a community level history if no one's done it before, the research can get very difficult. It can sometimes be very superficial. Um, first thing I'm going to do is look at the newspapers. That's the easiest, most consistent, if always with something of a slant. Um, for example, Fairview was home to Anchorage's black community for many years, the East Chester Flats. And the newspapers were not fond of black people in those days. Bob Atwood, the editor of the Anchorage Times, actively kept watch and commuted on the activities of the black community to the governor and to local police. So he was surveilling them. Yes, openly. Kept memos, communicated what looks more humorous now, very scary organizations like the NAACP. Mm -hmm. They're having a meeting. This is very scary. They're going to try and riot and take take over. (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, this reached the peak during the 60s where there were severe riots in the rest of the country, Detroit and Baltimore. But there was that fear that this was going to happen everywhere. Um, Anchorage does not have that history, but mm-hmm. that didn't matter. They thought it could happen here, so he kept surveillance on them. Do you have any more examples of that? Of him keeping track of people? Yeah. Or that fear? Or even that fear, yeah. Um, so, like, the Watts riots was one of the biggest and most destructive. And I can find examples of people writing letters, like, to the newspaper, talking about the fear of what could happen something like 15 years after. 
Um, usually after something terrible has happened to a black person, you know, so there's always some justified cause. Like the police have shot a black man in situation where they would not have shot a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, Cassell Williams, 1981. Philip Moore, 1979. Um there was in the late 60s, there was a push under Governor Hickel to have a riot code enacted that would have given the um, city and state more power to react to the potential. They thought Black Panthers were going to travel up here and organize. Uh, that never happened. Um, but on the other hand, the KKK always actually saw Alaska as a more active breeding ground for recruitment. And um, David Duke, the Klansman, Grand Wizard, um, he was represent- posted up in, in Kenai area for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He came up here around 1980 because this was the fertile place. And so there actually was active white nationalist organization mm-hmm. and promotion and recruitment going on. Um, white power pamphlets would be dropped in front of homes through the early 90s. Um, There's one incident in the early 90s where in Anchorage High School, a certain group of white power lads walked onto campus and started a big brawl. And so we're looking at the kind of the powers that be in Anchorage at the time, and they're worried about Black Panthers and uprising, but they're totally turning a blind eye to these white supremacists. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, these are people who have a history of, like, take Governor Hickel, Wally Hickel, Mm -hmm. one of the most famous Alaskans. He loved to talk about how he you know, pulled himself up by the bootstraps. He came up here with just the change in his pocket. And he made his first real fortune flipping homes, buying and selling homes, mostly in Spinard, started off in Spinard. These homes, you know, then turned again neighborhood. These are homes with white-only housing covenants. I have, these are freely available online through the recorder's office. The deeds of sales, because these all have to be recorded mm-hmm. for business purposes. These deeds have covenants in them saying not to sell to black people. And he is, as one of the biggest sellers, including these covenants in his deeds. He lived in a whites-only neighborhood in Turnigan. Did this have anything to do with redlining? Um, Redlining is a tough word. That's more of an insurance mortgage lending term. And while I believe that banks were unlikely to lend to minorities. I have no real evidence of that. But what you have instead are whites-only advertisements in the newspapers into the 1960s. Um, These housing covenants, as I described, um, they're in the deeds. They don't disappear. Mm -hmm. So they're still on these people's deeds. But I'm seeing new ones being added through the 1950s. And you have that system, plus you have Well, to take it back a bit, 1947, Shelley Kramer was a Supreme Court case that ruled that racially restricted housing covenants, such as including a little note, do not sell to black people, um, were unenforceable. That is, you could legally agree to that. I don't know why, but that the state, federal government could not back you up on that point. However, that did not stop people from including covenants. And in fact, you have it in Alaska people suing other developers for selling to black people. And you get instances, uh, there was one family that wanted to live in Airport Heights where they had to have a go-between um, a white friend buy the house and then sell it to them. No way. And then, of course, there was the fire in Rogers Park. Um, 
Alvin Campbell bought a home in 1950, Rogers Park, arsoned. It was burnt down. Yes. Because he was a black man with a house in Rogers there Park. There was an ongoing lawsuit against him and the developer who had sold the land to him. Basically, that developer had bought 30 lots from the um, bigger developers that were developing Rogers Park. He bought 30 of the lots. It seems like there was some sort of disagreement between the smaller developer, a man named Alton Lee Brown, and the bigger developers. Um, he had twice sued them by this point, and this is after only being in the Rogers Park business for about a year. And won both of those instances. Brown had won them against the bigger developers. And he went from having ads saying, come to Rogers Park, come buy the new lots in Rogers Parks, to come to Rogers Park, we we will sell to black people, to ads that say, lots for sale to black people only. There's this progression. So either he saw a market that wasn't being filled, um, or there's a way of getting back at the other developers who there were covenants on all of these properties on the subdivisions. And the developers sued him and Campbell, the owner of the home that was burned down, for a breaking covenant. This mm-hmm. was 1950. 1953, the Supreme Court would hear a case that would um, basically eliminate that loophole and make it illegal to sue someone for breaking a covenant, a racially restrictive housing covenant. But they wouldn't become strictly illegal into the Fair Housing Act of the 60s. You know, in the course of our emails, you asked you asked me, how dark do you like your history uh, stories? Because your knowledge ranges from chinchilla stories to racial violence. Yes. <laughs> um, I do like the light side as well. We went dark quick, which is my tendency. My wife hates that I do that. <laughs> Because I had it the opposite way. I wanted to go light first, but since we're already like uh, kind of not there, <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get to that. So what comes to mind when you think of stories of racial violence in Anchorage? Um, I think status quo. Um, actually, what I tend to think of is there's that great strain of Alaska, uh, Alaska exceptionalism, that Alaska is better. We're better than the outside. We don't care how the outside does it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that is truly exceptional about Alaska, the physical grandeur, the mountains I can see every day and looking out a window. But there's so much of Alaska society that is just a recreation of society from the lower 48. And these aspects, housing discrimination, prejudice, these are aspects that were carried north. And that's a counter to that Alaska exceptionalism that I see quoted far too often. Uh, you know, stretching to say that Alaska is exceptional, therefore Alaskans are exceptional. I feel like that was a, a common theme with, with some of your research and some of your papers that you do is that as Alaskans, we tend to pride ourselves on our hospitality and the inclusion of others. But when it comes down to it, maybe we're not as hospitable or inclusive as we actually think. Yes. Did you read my paper about refugees? I actually do have some questions about that. Okay. Um, I didn't make it all the way through. It's an academic paper. I don't blame you. I do like academic papers, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, going off of that, in one of your recent studies, you look at Alaska's response to the World War II era refugee crisis, right? Yes. Um, and in the abstract, you explain that in 1939, the Department of Interior, which oversaw the then territory of Alaska proposed a relaxation of immigrant limits 
to allow European refugee settlement in Alaska. But then it goes on to say that Alaskans angrily and near uniformly rejected Jews as suitable settlers. Were there any notable facts or interesting tidbits you found in your research? Um, there was a lot of coded language. What do you mean by that? There was a lot of foreigners, them, they, these people. There was a lot of hesitation to flat out say Jews. And this was um, Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickes' point was to help the Jewish population. He came up with this idea to help them right after the um, um, Kristallnacht. What was that? Kristallnacht, the breaking of the glass raiding of Jewish homes in Germany. Okay. Um, but there are a couple of sources, um, newspapers that address it more openly. And you see examples of people they would have accepted. This is the same time as the um, Finnish-Russian War. And the heavily besieged Finns fought a noble losing fight. But Finns were seen as a much more suitable um, possible settler in Alaska at the time. The Finnish? Yes. Okay. And this is interesting because Alaska at that time had really struggled with population and struggled for decades with development. At the same time as they're saying no to Jewish settlers, they're saying in Congress, the mayors, Anthony Diamond, the non-voting representative to Congress, are saying we need people. We need people to spark industry, to spark development. But then when it comes with a population more ready-made and interested in finding a new place to live, mm -hmm. um, they said no because they were Jewish. Um, really interesting tidbit is you find some people like Ernest Greening. Um, he was appointed governor right around this time. He was Jewish. And he also did not want these Jews. He was an elected official here in Alaska. Not elected. He was appointed by the Department of the Interior as okay. something of a punishment move. He had been director of um, territories and islands, something like that. I can't remember the exact title. But he had pissed off Harold Ickes, who was something of a dictator within the Department of the Interior, and got assigned to become governor of Alaska. <laughs> no election. <laughs> I mean, he would later become elected senator once Alaska got to elect senators. But um, he was himself Jewish. But this is a, a broader thing that's been well documented, that the American Jewry were not always open and willing to risk political capital, their social position to help Jewish refugees from Europe, that they themselves saw themselves as different. And Greening has this one harrowing letter where he blames European Jews for the problems they are facing. He's blaming them for the problems that the They're European Jews. Yes, he's blaming the European Jews for the problems they are facing in Europe. Really? What, what did he say? Um, it's been a while since I've looked at that research, but he said something about their religion and ties to religion bringing them their troubles. Like that point was very clear. And he was contacted as he was governor and as a director of territories before that. And he was firmly against Jewish settlement anywhere in America, but including Alaska. I know that paper starts out with you saying it's something of a catch-22. What did you mean by that? That was the economic catch-22, which it wasn't my greatest use of words, but basically that Alaska needed people to develop, to develop infrastructure, to develop reasons for people to come here. But they needed reasons for people to come here, for people to come here. 
So it took the, um, you know, the expansion of the military presence, you know, building the bases, federal money flooding into the city and the state for to get that development that they desired. So by the end of World War II, Alaska's already well on that road without the need for any other source of settlers. But in 1939, no one knew the impact that the military would have on Alaska. The land had already been set aside for what became uh, J-Bear, but construction hadn't started yet. It started the next year, I believe. You know, you keep you keep throwing all of these uh, these different dates out, and I feel like, in my own ignorance, I keep getting lost. What do you think, when you think of dates and times in Alaska, are some of the most pivotal? In Alaska? Yeah. Um, 1867, the Treaty of Session, American property from Russia. Can we talk about that? Um, that's far from my specialty, to be honest. Okay, we can just skip over yeah, that that's then. so long before there's an anchorage. Um I know a little bit about whalers, but not too much. So more like modern Anchorage. I mean, there were so few people in Alaska beside Alaska natives, and their history is even less documented. Yeah. So maybe more of a modern date then that's pivotal. Um, I believe it's 1920. Anchorage gets control over itself from the government. Um, 1959 statehood. Um, there are all those cries prior to that that um, it was a crime that Alaskans didn't have, you know, representation, didn't have votes that mattered, but were taxed. <laughs> um, the pipeline, discovery of oil, uh, when it was confirmed, 1967, I think, the North Slope find. Um, it, they knew there was oil there before, but the big confirmation, I believe, was 67. Um, Inksa, um, 85, when gas prices really crash in the city, uh, goes through a severe depression. 1940, when the base construction begins. Um, 1917, 1918, World War I basically ends the first boom of the city, and it takes it until the late 1930s to recover. Um, those are some of the dates I think of off, off the top of my head. I think 2019 will be one, but... That's another topic. <laughs> I, I, there's a whole book to be written about, regardless of your perspective on um, the actions of the government. A fantastic book to be written that conflates everything from the fires to the governor to the budget, university, that puts it all into one convenient text and ties it all together. Do you know how you could do that? Um, it would be the uh, – Do you, are you familiar with the book The Bronx is Burning? I, I am not, now. It's a 70s book. Or it's set in, it's not a 70s book, but it's set in the 70s and uses a New York Yankee season to explain this time of terror in New York, the serial killer, um, and and uses that to give you an idea of New York at the time. Like a, like an, having uh, an overarching theme that you're able to talk about all of these different things happening during that time, right? Yes. As I live through these events and breathe smoke on my walk over here. Yeah, yeah. And Anchorage is Burning type book. Yeah. I would love to read that one day. I don't have time to write it, but I would love to read that book. So if anybody's listening, there's an idea <laughs> for a book to write. You know, maybe let's get back to you being a public historian. So it's kind of like this new age historian, right? Is that... I mean, it, Strictly speaking, it can trace its roots back to the very origin of history, which was always meant to teach a lesson. If you go back to Herodotus... 
Uh, that's not super interesting. Uh, modern public history is more about the history where you are and actually getting it to the audience, mm -hmm. not locking it up, but using whatever method possible to get it to people who will care about it. Uh, democratization of knowledge. And how does that affect a community? Like, what is the ideal situation? Like, all right, here's the information. What do they do with it? Um, it's, I mean, it's always great to know people who mattered in your community and not let them be forgotten. Yeah. To think that your efforts in the community will not be forgotten. So if, for example, you fought to have a park built where there were instead slums in Fairview, that's something to remember and not be forgotten. Things like that can make the future seem possible, make anything you might want to do in the future possible because it's been done before. Precedent matters. Mm -hmm. um, knowing why things have happened matters. Knowing that, um, I mean, if you want to get dark, knowing that prejudice is not new, that it is a constant and it has a past, mm -hmm. that matters. Um, something that is constant is far more important and needs reaction to than something that is you know, of the moment. Do you think that it has anything to do with being immediately reactionary rather than thinking about it thoughtfully? Um, I mean, history kind of forces me to think thoughtfully. Not quite sure where to go with that one. I think that where my mind goes is we live in a very reactionary society right now where we see something and we have an immediate reaction, which is typical, right? Every single person since the history of people will have an immediate reaction to something, right? But they haven't always had the opportunity to tweet about it. You know, here's my immediate reaction to this thing as opposed to, all right, I see what's happening. I'm going to sit with it for a couple days and I'm going to think about it. And then I'm going to give a thoughtful response. And I think that history or being a historian, um, maybe you're taught academically to look at it that way because things happened so long ago that you're studying. Um, I mean, I try and connect myself to more modern things, but there is a side effect where, not trying to pun, but I'm, I am anchored against that like immediate reaction because mm -hmm. I've seen similar events in the past. I know it's more likely to happen. So I can think to myself that, no, this is not the worst thing ever. Uh, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. um, history kind of allows you that perspective and freedom. I still get upset about news. Um, but I think I'm more quickly able to move past like that more immediate visceral reaction. Do you think that you watch news as a historian? Um, I do because I, I think about biases. <laughs> I think about placement within a timeline. And to be honest, sometimes I just skip the news entirely because it's not quite history I need yet. Mm -hmm. But when I am watching or reading the news, I am thinking about it skeptically, as a historian does it with every source, critically. Why is this being written? Who does it serve? Uh, what are the interests here? I mean, that doesn't have to be necessarily cynical. And Critical article, thinking. Yeah, a news broadcast may be serving the people by giving them information, but it's a uh, thinking about that. And if you come to that conclusion, great. If it's something more nefarious, then okay. You can move with that knowledge. But historian has prepared me to think in those sort of ways. Critical how, grounding. How often do you draw comparisons? Oh, every, almost every single moment. <laughs> uh, every historian, I mean... You're good. <laughs> sorry for kicking things. Um, historians are hard to shut up. 
once you get one actually talking and if you can find one, um, they will immediately start telling you how this reminds them of 1817 or 1922 or something like that. Everything reminds us of something that we've researched and love and want to talk about. At that point, does it kind of seem like everything is so futile? Like we're not progressing. We're not getting anywhere because this happened. The same exact thing happened a thousand years ago. I see ebbs and flows. I, I don't want to be make it seem as powerless as um, I know you're just posing a question, but as that question sounded um, as dour as I made some of the history sound earlier, I believe in change. I believe in the possibility of change. I believe in the power of self-determination, um, self-efficacy, um, activism. Um, without that, it would be a truly dour way to look, live and look at the world. But because of history, I can see change. The, the fire I mentioned, where they burned down Alvin Campbell's house in Rogers Park, that led directly to the creation of the local NAACP chapter, which they'd had trouble for years getting started. And the NAACP in the 60s led to protests that led to African Americans getting hired in prominent businesses. Terrible things can lead to good things. Um, change could be bad, but change is an opportunity. For example, um, regardless of your view of the current um, happenings um, in Juneau, I'm seeing a rise in people interested in rather obscure um, oil tax law, mm -hmm. um, which would be in any other state extremely obscure. But here I've seen people quoting it on message boards. Um, I've seen people interested in state budgets in a way you would not normally. That is not the norm in most states. Um, and interest in the political process. And change can bring that. I think that that's probably happening nationally. You know, you're having a lot of people um, paying attention, especially younger and younger generations where otherwise they just they turn off because, you know, all politicians lie or, you know, it's all fake news. Yes. Yeah, it's all fake news. <laughs> you know, you mentioned how we can look at history and you try not to be so dour about it because change does happen. It does occur. Yes. Right. They're they're really magnificent beautiful things that have happened because of really crappy things yes you mentioned the rogers park fire do you have any other instances um laney flasher who was one of several people that helped get a bike bike paths and um, um services along the green belt um many of the local parks exist only through advocacy Sometimes by small organizations. Jewel Lake was developed by the Spinard Lions Club and anybody in the neighborhood who wanted to help out in the 50s just because they needed an actual place to swim that wasn't just a, you know, undeveloped hole in the ground with some water in it. Mm -hmm. um, ANCSA, like, I mean, it's a little bit beyond my generation, but seeing Alaska Natives get compensation for their land, seeing the voting rights out of the, of the 60s. Um, Change has happened. Massive change has happened in Alaska. It's possible. I see it in the past. It can happen again. Mm -hmm. What about some other history of local landmarks? Okay. Um, I'm actually today I was writing about Greater Friendship Baptist Church. Um, it's a little concrete block on Ingra. Most people pass it by. It's a rather unassuming building. Um, it was the first black church to affiliate with the Southern Baptist Convention. Which what does is, that mean? The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant congregation in the nation and the second largest Christian after the Catholic. 
Okay. So very big deal. Largest group of Christians other than Catholics. And for many, many decades, they were fervently opposed to equality of African-Americans and letting black people in the doors. The whole reason that there are Southern Baptists is because in the 1840s, they wanted their missionaries to be able to own slaves. So they broke from the Northern Baptist, who pretty much disagreed with that point, more on the, the idea that missionaries should not own property rather than any abolitionist thought. So this, there's this idea, like if you go out trailblazing a trail, you clear the, under, the undergrowth that you're for the next person if you're blazing a trail. There has to be a first, so there's a second. Okay. And greater friendship, it's hard to trace all a lot of change directly to this church, but change happened after it. And that a first happened in Anchorage is fascinating to me. Um, there are more than 4,000 African-American, pr primarily African-American churches in the Southern Baptist Convention now. Um, that's a change that happened, started at least in Anchorage. Um, it was placed on the National Register of Historic Places this year as well, in recognition for that fact. Do you know how it happened? Was there... The process of it? Yeah, the process of it happening, yeah. Getting into the convention or the... Yeah. So to get into the Southern Baptist Convention, the state convention votes you in. So that may sound like Alaskans were more um, open to the idea. And it's true, the earliest black Southern Baptist Convention churches were on the periphery of the nation. They were not in Alabama. The next one is in California. Then after that, they're in like Michigan, places like that. But um, Southern Baptist Convention doesn't like to give a lot of authority to like, you know, delegates. Um, I forget the term. But it was still a big deal that they were allowed to include a black church in the convention. This is 1951. When this happened, the church was founded that year. And was there any lobbying done on on behalf of that church here in Anchorage? To change things elsewhere? No. No, to be inducted into that, or were they just immediately considered? It seems like they're immediately considered. I mean, they started as a congregation meeting in the basement of First Baptist uh, when First Baptist was downtown. Um, it seems like there may have been some disagreements over practices of worship. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they needed to find their own place, but still Fairview Baptist, not Fairview Baptist, First Baptist supported their inclusion. And it was a unanimous vote, actually. The second church that, was, uh, that joined the SBC in California was much more divisive and came down to uh, a single vote deciding the matter. In the course of your research with Greater Friendship or of Greater Friendship, um, is there anything that stands out, any stories any, anything particular? Um, it's hard to pull any past the normalization of a black church in the Southern Baptist Convention. Just the normalization of a black church in a largely white congregation, national congregation. The first black man elected to represent the Southern Baptist Convention at the state level was a greater friendship pastor, Leo Jose, in the 1960s. The first black man elected president of a state Baptist convention was in the 1970s from a, a different church that no longer exists. It, my thought when I was reading and researching Greater Friendship, which I did in partnership with the church, was I could never escape the normalization, the idea that this could be an example that others could see, others could churches could see, maybe we could join the convention, maybe we could be recognized by peer churches. 
Um, but, you know, obviously some churches prior then probably felt the need not to apply, mm-hmm. not to affiliate, not to build a larger, you know, brotherhood fellowship. Kind of like a why bother thing? Yes. Okay. And to see African-Americans in leadership, okay, maybe now I try. Maybe now I run for office. Again, it takes these firsts for there to be a second. It can be a relatively small first, but the next steps build up. Did you find anything that indicated how uh, greater friendship was received in Alaska? Um, positive and negative. Um, for many years, their choir was a fixture at um, public events, um, non-religious public events. Mayors used to go to pastors there to talk and get, you know, feedback. But at the same time, they struggled. We were talking about redlining. One of the better examples I have of anything approaching that is the church could not get a loan. Um, in the 80s through the early 90s, the church and then the pastor by himself uh, tried to get loans from banks but could not. Um, and then it reached one of those moments, you know, when stories coalesce and you suddenly get a lot of coverage about churches not lending to minorities. And one of those stories happened, was in the cycle in the early 90s, and Banks came to the pastor then and asked, how can we help the minority community? And he was like, you could give me the loan I've been asking for. <laughs> and they did. The church was able to expand its property, buy some additional properties, and they paid off their mortgage years in advance. That's great. But it obviously had been trying to get that loan for years. And they finally got it. A lot of what we've kind of been talking about is is change tends to beget change. Yes. Do you see anything right now currently that maybe you can uh, maybe prophetically, you know, look to the future like this? What is happening currently right now in Alaska will beget blank. Um, so we're in a what could be pretty openly called something of a down cycle. There have been these before. Um, Anchorage suffered in the late 80s. Thousands of people fled town, abandoned their mortgages. Um, same thing happened in the early 60s. People tend to forget that when Alaska became the state, it had a lot of trouble funding until the oil money came in. In fact, the city thought about selling some of its parks. They got very close to selling Goose Lake in the early 70s to private developers. Um, so what I see from this is just that there will be a cycle of political activism and growth that comes out of it. There will be renewed interest in, um, the political process. I'm hopeful and I'm willing to predict that of higher voter turnout. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a pretty easy and small prediction. Historians are notoriously hesitant about predicting the future. Um, I'm predicting more interest in voter turnout, political action, uh, more organization, more interest in um, some of the relatively minutia of government practice. Maybe instead of the word prediction, based on your historical knowledge and what change can come from certain things, what would you like to see? That gets much closer to my personal political beliefs. I want to see 
education systems that are well-funded, rural programs not abandoned, um, access for rural villages. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of the primary issues I'm affected by. Or not affected by, that's a lie. Um, primary issues that I'm very intrigued and concerned about. Um, I want to see expanded voting access throughout the state. Um, I mean, there's some more isolated villages that get, you know, a voting machine like half a day before it has to move across the river to some other village. I would like to see that expanded and protected. Mm-hmm. So getting back to what I read in your bio on the Humanities Commons profile, how do you think racial injustice affects community construction? Um, the physical geography is how you can start off with. Um, take Mountain View. So you probably heard the much, much quoted thing about Mountain View being the most diverse area in the country. Sure. Everybody says that. Why is it diverse? It's diverse because that was a place from its beginning that didn't have the housing covenants like most of the other neighborhoods in Anchorage when it was first developed in the early 1940s. I don't find those racist housing covenants in Mountain View. I don't know why, but I don't see them. And I see them in most other communities at that time. Your Spinard, Airport Heights, bits of Fairview even, South Edition, uh, North Star, Rogers Park, Turnigan, obviously. Um, and these are the covenants barring... Barring racially restricted covenants, barring minorities from purchasing uh, properties in the neighborhood. Okay. Um, and then when you have the economic collapse in the late 80s, gas prices drop, jobs disappear... You get a certain amount of um, poorer whites who did not escape, who had to stay. That's actually what, statistically speaking, if you go into Chad Farrell, who wrote about this, what makes it unique is you can find communities throughout the country where it's very diverse, but no white people. So oddly enough, it is the presence of white people, as weird as that is to say, that makes Mountain View more diverse and unique compared to other communities, that it has a broader range. The presence of white people makes it... Statistically speaking, it is the presence of white people that makes Mountain View more diverse than some of the communities you might have thought of, like in like Seattle or New York. Which is completely absurd, right? Because that means by placing white people in there, it becomes relevant. Yes. It, it is an awkward thing to read. It is both a statistical reality and a politically awkward and socially awkward comment to make. You know, that's one thing that I've I've always found interesting about historians is there are things that are very not PC for an average person to say. But if you're coming from a, a historical perspective, you're like, well, this is the reality of it. In theory, yes. In reality, historians are as susceptible to their biases as anyone else. I have my biases. Okay. Um, I tend to be very drawn to conflict and make a lot out of conflict. This is a certain perspective that you can take. The conflict moments are the moments that are most revelatory. Your truth comes out when the you know the shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people who have different biases. For example, there is one historian who wrote a history of Anchorage not too long ago where he said early Anchorage, pre-World War II, was a place free of prejudice uh, where everyone was valued for who they were. Everyone was equal. Is that bullshit? Oh, that's such absolute bullshit. I mean, this is the, <laughs> the you know, no dogs in Eskimo sign period. 
So why would that person say that? Biases. I mean, the most prominent black person at that time passed as white. Tom really? Bevers, who was a city councilman. Who I'm helped, sorry, who was that again? Tom Bevers. He was a city councilman. He helped found uh, Fur Rondi. He was a fire chief. That was a really big deal to be a fire chief in those days. Everything was so prone to burning. He passed as white. No one knew he was black until after he died in the mid-1940s, and his evidently darker-skinned sister showed up for the body. He shows up in Anchorage in the early 20s, I believe. Passed as white his whole life. No one knew. What people forget about that nice story is there was incentive for him to pass as white. To pass as white meant he couldn't bring his family up here. He couldn't share certain bits about his past. He had to, in essence, live a lie every single day of his life in Alaska. He had to live with that pressure of pretending to be something that he wasn't, surrounded by people who would have a far different opinion of him if he were to reveal certain facts about himself. And you only do that if there's a reason for you to do that, if you get something out of that deal. And sure, it seems like he made the most out of that deal. And in a city where that happens... That is not a city where everyone is accepted as equal. Yeah, I think that's like the definition of inequality. <laughs> yes. So why why are we or why were we willfully ignorant? Um, again, personal biases. Some people do not see or prefer not to see racism. Some people prefer not to talk about that. There is... um. There's a brand of history approach called um, consensus history, mostly out of favor now. But, you know, your smaller history books will still be very much in this tone, largely discredited after the 1950s. But the idea that we're all one people and we share more than we um, than we have dissimilar. We're more similar than dissimilar. Mm -hmm. So that sounds really, really good. Until you want to talk about any narrative apart from the dominant narrative. And the dominant narrative is usually one of white political power. Mm -hmm. So a consensus history doesn't deal very well with any narratives, not just of race, but of poorer people. People are disenfranchised for any reason. Are we seeing a shift in how history is written now based on how it used to be written? Um, I mean, academically speaking, the shifts are always going. Um, I'm very influenced by critical race theory, which means that history is more constant than we want to think, and that the um, objects, the systems of power in a given society make that so. So for racial injustice, it's the cops, it's the political system that enforce that status quo forever. Which goes back to the, um, the point we we're talking about earlier, that knowing that makes it more important to address, um, as opposed to if it had been some isolated incident, making you think about that problem. But as much as I want to talk about like brands of history like that, the reality is, is every historian is really coming at it with their own perspective and biases. And for all of those broad sweeps of historiography, of thought and theory, each book, I believe is reflective of the author. The sources we chose, some are obviously going to be better, be more inclusive, be more accurate to the sources, but each history is somewhat beholden to its author. It's the reason why history needs to be redone 
that new authors can give a fresh look, can look at the original sources in a different way, or the bits of the original sources that were ignored, or original sources that were creatively lost or ignored entirely. When you say history needs to be redone, do you mean all the books need to be thrown away and we need to start over? Or um, Sometimes I think that wouldn't be the worst thing, but that's just being flippant. Um, just to build on it, look and see. So if I want to look about Anchorage, it's important to me to see how Elizabeth Tower or Atwood or Preston Jones or anyone else wrote about Anchorage in the past, because that is a reflection of how people saw Anchorage. Um, and I hope that things I do are done better in the future, that these could be stepping stones, that you don't have to start research. I mean, they teach you in history to, um, you know, go back to the ground and start at square one. But really, you're using previous historians, the sources they dig up mm-hmm. as your you know first steps. The it's, people that have set the precedents. Yes. So even if I disagree with them entirely, I'm going back to the sources they found. I, I don't have to start at a complete zero. Um, and I do really hope, like, as I write things about Fairview and Spinard for the future, that it gives someone a chance, since there had not been anything really written about those communities before, 10 years, 15, 20 years more from now, that someone gets a chance to write even better, more exhaustive thorough review than I can now. So we've talked a lot about a lot of heavy stuff. Do you want to tell me the chinchilla story? (laughs) Yes. The chinchilla story is something I came across by accident when I was researching Fairview. And um, they were all, it's always good to pay attention to the ads. And I noticed an ad for a chinchilla supply store, 1954, Alaska's first chinchilla feed and supply store. And I thought, what the hell is going on here? Why, why (laughs) is there a chinchilla feed store in Anchorage, which was, I don't know, 30, 35,000 people by this time. Why is it getting a chinchilla feed and supply store? That was very specific. So I looked into it and it tied into this broader um, breeding industry, which was mostly scam. Um, Chinchillas were brought into America in the 1920s and they were virtually extinct elsewhere. Like the actual wild chinchilla that people raise for fur now is pretty much ex- almost extinct in uh, Chile, where they mostly come from. Okay. Higher elevations of Chile. And this one man started breeding chinchillas. Very slow process because he only had, I can't recall exactly, but it was like 13 <laughs> chinchillas that he smuggled out of the country. <laughs> uh, back to his California ranch. And so people thought that these were rare. Their fur is lovely. They have a very dense soft fur. If you've ever gotten a chance to touch a chinchilla or a chinchilla fur, nothing against people who are against fur, but it is objectively very soft, (laughs) dense fur. It is luxuriously soft, very dense and soft. So people saw a potential there that these were both rare and potentially valuable. So people started investing in um, chinchillas. The problem was there was no market. For chinchillas. Obviously, if we're starting off with 13 chinchillas, it's going to take a long time for our market to develop because you have no supply. It takes decades. Mm-hmm. But by the mid-1930s, you have people paying thousands of dollars for a chinchilla breeding pair. Thousands of dollars in today money. And by the 1940s, it's a full-on industry. Buying and selling chinchillas. People aren't buying and selling the fur yet. It's still a dream of a market that does not actually exist. And people pick up on this and start scamming. They get 
ratty old chinchillas. They get chinchillas that are um, um, barren, um, not going to breed anymore, selling them for thousands of dollars. And it becomes a very public scam by the late 50s. But in the early 50s, this was still pretty much unknown. Alaska was very slow to get the news always. Mm -hmm. So a guy who became a judge brought them up in the late 1940s. The first chinchilla pair in Alaska. And chinchillas are still so rare that nobody's seen a chinchilla in their life. <laughs> like, you see advertisements like, we will have a chinchilla at our furniture store. So anything can pass as a chinchilla. Oh, it almost feels like that. I, I wonder sometimes if there are, like, bunnies thrown in there and people were tricked. <laughs> but it, it was an advertisement. It was an attraction to have a chinchilla in front of your store. This is a fuzzy chinchilla. Like, it was a, you paid for the big advertisement in the paper because you had hooked up with a chinchilla for the day. And this all sounds great. People are still spending thousands of dollars. It gets to the point where people are buying percentages of chinchillas. <laughs> like, I own 15% of your chinchilla. And as it breeds and you start collecting money from selling chinchillas, I will get paid off of that. So they become a stock. <laughs> um, and this is just like, any other investment scams from tulips to comic books in the early 90s or baseball cards where the market expands and it's so much in the potential and there's been no real test of the scarcity yet. So 1954, there's this big fur auction in New York. It's the first organized chinchilla fur market and the prices die. They get nothing. The problem with chinchillas is... Um, well, one, they're not as easy as raised as people said they were, and it takes a lot of chinchillas to make a coat. Chinchillas are tiny. Mm -hmm. And this news doesn't reach Alaska for a while. This kills the market in most of the rest of America. You still have people selling them, but then it becomes a pure scam. And I was drawn to the story of people bringing chinchillas to Alaska, advertising them, using them as attractions, opening chinchilla feed stores after the market has crashed in the rest of the country. A really good example of how far... Um, Alaska was behind the trends at the time. It took that long for the news to reach Alaska, that they were opening this first chinchilla feed store in the territory months after the disastrous sale of fur in New York. And there's this trail of classifieds that you can see in the Anchorage Times at the time, like $3,000 for a chinchilla. You go in like 1956, it was like, I need a car. We'll trade chinchillas for car. No way. Then it's a month after that. It's like, we'll trade chinchillas for super deal for anything of value. And then next month, like, please take the chinchillas off my hand. They are worth nothing. <laughs> like, there's this stream, like very obvious, like the decline is there in the classifieds. But for a while, there is nothing more important or valuable. Um, a local guy, there was a chinchilla ranch on 15th Avenue. <laughs> near 15th and Ingra and one of his prized chinchillas, Prince Andy was stolen. That was his name. Prince, Prince Andy. Andy. <laughs> and um, this was a police matter, like serious investigation. The man fled back to like Oregon with Prince Andy. It was a major police investigation. Prince Andy was valued at several hundreds of dollars. And I'm just really drawn to this brief, wonderful moment where people thought they were going to, fix their entire lives through investment in chinchillas. I feel like that's, 
that's kind of how we are now, though. I mean, if it's not chinchillas, then it's it's something else. You oh, know, yeah. it's Instagram. It's yeah. like, how many likes can I get on this? Quick, uh, get quick, rich schemes are forever. Yeah, just this particular one, which nobody has ever written about. This was across the nation. It's really struggling to find documentation about it all, other than sales listings. Um, it's just a fascinating one that for a while, chinchillas that you had to take care of and feed wasn't just something you could store. People thought this was going to be their retirement. It's kind of like that, uh, you know, I, I don't really know how factual it is, but um, people in New York buying baby alligators however long ago, and then they end up flushing them. And then, you know, the the uh, the folklore is that you have all of these full-grown alligators in the sewer. Oh, I'm sure no small amount of chinchillas were just released after a point of becoming too much of a feed and upkeep burden, <laughs> which some point in the mid-50s, there were probably loose chinchillas in Anchorage. They did Wild not survive for long. <laughs> chinchillas are actually really good for lots of different... Um, I mean, they, they come from high altitude, um, Chile, up in the Andes, but probably didn't last for long here. So did finding this little nugget of information, did you go and learn about chinchillas afterwards? I, I was reading chinchilla breeding manuals, um, anything that gave me information, because this is not, as I would say, something well documented. You can't just go read the history of chinchillas. Um, I had to go learn about chinchilla breeding. Um, one of the things the conman, the salesman would say is that, oh, they're so easy to keep. You just put them in a super tiny cage. You can stack all the cages. You just put them in a wall in your garage, give them some feed every once in a while. You're good. It turns out chinchillas are, you know, like most, you know, you know, they're a little mammal. They like a little bit more than that. Otherwise you're not going to get great fur out of the deal. Um, I had to read <laughs> chinchilla care manuals to learn that fact, that this stacking and little micro kennels were not actually going to help your investment. <laughs> at, at some point, there was someone sold on this idea, which had no basis. Again, nobody was realizing value. It was just a breeder selling to another breeder to breed, to breed more chinchillas. There was no outcome. There was no resource extraction. They weren't getting anything out of it yet. And this went on for two decades before they finally crashed and realized nobody was going to pay them that much for their fur. It's like uh, it's like the next step up from, uh, you know, I have a bridge in Brooklyn I want to sell you. Except they could actually give you a little thing to hold. This seems fabulous. The ladies will love this soft fur, which really does feel fabulous, but... So as I was researching and writing my questions down, I realized that a lot of this doesn't really put Alaskans in the best light. <laughs> my wife um, my wife thinks I have the power to find like the ugliest facts when I go research. She's actually really happy I found the chinchilla story because it makes me happy. <laughs> and it's but such a light, frothy story, relatively. Like people lost some money, but there are chinchillas hopping around Alaska and in department stores. You said that you're you're drawn toward conflict yes. in history, so it's it must be pretty fun to find something light like this. It is. I mean, that is fun. Sometimes it's really it's personally healthy for me to escape that sometimes, and sometimes the local history is that way. Finding out like why is so and so street named so and so street, which that's the type of questions I get the most. Well, 
the number one question I get when people find out I'm a historian and I'm out somewhere is they will point to a house and they will ask me, what's the story of that house? And they're usually very sad when I don't know the story of that <laughs> relatively random house. Um, the next question is always, why is it called this? Mm-hmm. Why is it Debar? Why is it um, Boniface? You know, things like that. Boniface, sorry. Why is it Debar and why is it Boniface? Um, I set you up for that. Um, Debar is more legend than history, as far as I can tell. So Debar dates back to like 1951, 1952, when the road was built. It didn't connect with 15th. It ended, like it went from like what is Muldoon up to about Airport Heights Boulevard. I think Airport Heights is a boulevard. Airport site area by the hospital. I don't know. You're the historian. (laughs) (laughs) I'm forgetting the street, whether it's a street or boulevard. But, um, and then there was Debar Vista, which was a subdivision immediately west of the Debar Walmart. So that's the first use of the name. Um, According to legend, it is called Debar because the military, which owned the property there and to the east um, during the 1940s, had a bar they placed there. So this person wrote in the early 80s that there was this old pioneer who was upset with the military. First they bar us, then they debar us. And that is the legend of why is it called, why is it, it is called debar. That they, because like, there was a debar. <laughs> and this is an actual physical alcoholic bar. No, like a, a, a metal bar that blocked the road. Oh. That the military was blocking, like, access through the road. Oh, okay, okay. A, a metal bar. It was D-bar. <laughs> what about Boniface? Boniface is named after Paul Boniface. And you have to be careful because it's not Boniface like how it would maybe be pronounced elsewhere. The family's very specific about that. Um, he was a World War II veteran. And um, I believe it was 1949. There was a lottery for land in the Anchorage Bowl uh, to Homestead. And this, this was restricted to veterans. And um, he won that land right around um, Northern Lights and Boniface. That was his homestead. Um, a lot of the famous roads a little further south came from that time. I believe that was the lottery where you get O'Malley. And um, I'm forgetting a couple of the others. For Doc O'Malley. Yeah, I think I think that might be when some of those homesteaders... Maybe Tudor, like also won their like stakes, homestead stakes then. And so, you know, he got the street named for him. He also advocated for the extension of Northern Lights to actually reach his house. Like Northern Lights didn't run all the way east then. So he basically wanted it to reach his house. Just end in his driveway? (laughs) That's what he wanted. And he never got it. Well, you know, he wanted street access. Yeah. Be able to drive into Spinard. I guess to cap this off. Do you think Alaskans are better today than we were in the past? And to what extent should we consider our unsavory history and learn from it? Um, remember the unsavory history because people did that shit. Let's not forget that people have both did that shit and have the capability to do that. Um, don't forget how that shaped the world that we have now. Um, as far as like to the past, it's always remember to ground yourself in the ebbs and flows. This may seem like a low moment now. Thousands of jobs have been lost in Anchorage alone in the past two years. But we see the businesses leaving 
and much smaller businesses of any opening. But remember that this cycle has happened before. It does not mean it necessarily will bounce back again as it has in the past, but it means it can if we try. And the past tells us to try. I like that. The past tells us to try. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, man. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.